Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Agenda Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So we have made it through yet another bad, awful, horrible, no good week in our seemingly never-ending cycle of bad, awful, no good weeks. Um, I did already do an episode on the vice presidential debate that took place on Wednesday night. So if you want to hear my comments on that, that has its own episode. It's the one before this one. So I'm not going to be covering that in this episode because I've pretty much said everything there really is to say on that topic. So moving on from that insanity. And just to remind everybody who hasn't done so already, um, go sign up for my Substack. That is where the second episode of the week is going to be. I'm not doing two episodes anymore a week. I'm doing one and then I'm doing the Substack. So go sign up over there. It's jenmonroe.substack.com and link will be down in the show notes. And then that way you still get all of the content that I usually put out just in a slightly different format because I've just had to change things a little bit. So anyway, this past week, I will start where I have been starting, and that is with the unemployment numbers. For the week of October 3rd, we had 840,000 new initial unemployment claims filed. So we seem to be stabilizing around that number for now, which is better than our previous stabilization of around a million a week. Obviously, I will take this, but it is still bad. And I'm not seeing the the bump that I was hoping to see in regards to like seasonal employment. And I mean, we are pretty much in the middle of October at this point. So this would be the time of year where that hiring would have already taken place or would be taking place. So maybe fingers crossed, it's just gonna be a little later this year. But as, as I remember it, in years past, they usually try to start around September that way that everybody that's being hired for seasonal work, you know, you're trained, you're, you're kind of ready to go by the time November comes around because then obviously you have the holiday shopping season, you have Black Friday, and then you have all the insanity after that. So hopefully fingers still crossed on that. Although, I, like I've been saying, in-person retail is just not going to be a thing this holiday season. I don't think. I think the majority of it is going to be online. So we shall see what happens with that. Hopefully, hopefully there will be something that come along to help mitigate this at least a little bit. On the brighter side of the unemployment front, um, at this point, we have recovered a little over half of the 22 million jobs that we lost at the onset of the COVID pandemic. So a little bit of good news. I mean, that's still a good 10 million do- or 10 million jobs off from where we should be. And it's officially put us at losing more jobs than the past the 2008 recession. So I don't know, maybe it'll get better, hopefully soon. Although, I mean, the only thing that's going to make this better is a vaccine or an actual treatment path. Fingers crossed on both of those in the near future. <laughs> um, um, we, we have a little bit of news coming out of Donald Trump on that one, but I'll get to that in a second because there was a piece of news that I didn't get to in the last weekly roundup that I want to touch on. And that is that we did finally, like at the, the last possible moment, 
uh, the Trump administration did issue the refugee cap for fiscal year 2021, which starts on October 1st. So we are already in fiscal year 2021. Um, they capped it at 15,000 for the whole fiscal year, which the year before that fiscal year 2020, I believe we were at 16,000, which is still insanely low given everything that is going on. Um, in fiscal year 2020, we actually resettled a little over 10,000 refugees. So we didn't even hit that cap because of all of the various and assorted restrictions that are placed on people immigrating to the United States now, both pre and post COVID. And just having it at 15,000, I mean, we should have quadruple that number just for people from Hong Kong. Like they should have a special line and that cap should be at like 250,000. Not to mention the fact that even though we are still in a pandemic, we do still have active wars going on around the globe. We still have a massive, massive refugee crisis that existed before COVID and certainly hasn't gotten any better. So just capping it this low and then even just the actual numbers of how many people will actually get to be resettled in the United States it'll be even lower than fiscal year 2020. Just just because of all the immigration restrictions put in place due to COVID, I would I would be willing to bet that maybe, maybe 5,000 for fiscal year 2021, which is insane when you think about the fact that this is America. Like this has been the country that traditionally has been very open to refugees, to people fleeing horrible economic conditions, people fleeing horrible governments, people fleeing war zones, and we're not that anymore. And that's just, that's really sad. That's really just depressing. And I know there's so much else going on, but that's something that I don't want people to lose sight of, that really we don't do immigration in the United States anymore. I mean, it's been effectively cut off. I mean, even pre-COVID, there were so many restrictions put in place. And now, obviously, because you have the excuse of COVID, we've pretty much shut off immigration to the United States. Like, you have to be incredibly privileged, incredibly wealthy to even qualify, let alone make it through the system of things that you have to do to be able to legally move here. It's just, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And it's shameful. And it's disgraceful. And Maybe with the election in November, things will change. Although for fiscal year 2021, I don't think that even if Joe Biden was sworn in in January, he could do anything about that because, I mean, once once the cap is set, the cap is set. But maybe going forward, there can be some changes in immigration policy. So I wanted to, to touch on that just because it's it just... Uh... I, I hate what's happened to immigration policy in this country. And I and there's a lot of blame to go around. I don't put this just on the Trump administration, although they are the people leading this. But if Congress had did what they were supposed to do decades ago and did immigration reform and didn't kick this over to the executive branch and to the legislative branch, we wouldn't be having this discussion. So there's a lot of blame to go around. And I've certainly spread it over the years. So... Maybe in the future, we'll do immigration reform. I'm not holding my breath, though. Moving on to the events of this week. 
Woo! It has been a week. And like I said, already addressed the vice presidential debate. So that, that, that was a whole ball of crazy. But on the topic of debates, and I touched on this at the end of that episode as to when I recorded that, I recorded it on Thursday and it was still kind of up in the air as to what was going to be happening with next week's debate. And on Friday, the Commission for Presidential Debates officially canceled next week's debate. So there is no debate next Thursday or this coming Thursday, depending on when you're listening to this. The last debate, which is scheduled for, I believe, the 23rd, is still on and is still scheduled to be an in-person event. Although, who knows? Who the hell knows what is going on anymore? Nobody knows, but I will say that the cancellation of this upcoming debate proves that there is a God and occasionally he takes mercy on me because I was not looking forward to this. I was just like, Oh my God. And of course, if you don't know the backstory or if you missed the last episode, this all started because the Commission on Presidential Debates decided that it was too high risk to hold an in-person debate with Trump in the upcoming week. So they decided to do it virtually. Trump pitched a fit, said, I'm not wasting my time doing that. And so Biden reacted to that by basically saying, well, if he's not doing this, then we're pulling out. And then the Biden camp scheduled their own town hall for next Thursday. That's going to be hosted by ABC. That'll be a solo town hall with Joe Biden. So yeah, (laughs) Uh, just on the topic of debates and just as as a brief heads up, um, my upcoming piece for Rocket News next week touches on this too, or actually doesn't touch on it. It's about this, but can we please just stop doing this? Like, can we please stop with the televised presidential debates? Do we really need them anymore? Are we, nobody learned anything from the past two. I mean, nothing of value was gained. And I mean, at this point, both candidates, I mean, everybody knows what they need to know about them. And even, even if these were two relatively unknown candidates, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other ways for them to communicate to a nationwide audience now. There's plenty of ways for potential voters to find out what a particular candidate's stance is on any particular issue that is important to them. I mean, there's websites, you've got social media, you've got YouTube videos. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I think we've progressed past the point where these sorts of televised formal debates are particularly helpful or useful to anybody trying to make an actual informed decision about who they want to vote for. And I know everybody's made jokes about how many undecided voters there are this year, like maybe five left, I don't know. But what was telling to me is after that first presidential debate, uh, Frank Luntz actually tweeted out, normally he does kind of like a, a viewing party, for lack of a better word, it's not a party, but you know what I mean, with a group of undecided voters and he sits there with them. They all watch the debate together. And he tweeted out after that first debate that this was the first year that he has ever seen a debate actually convince undecided voters to not vote at all. Like that's how bad that was. So, I mean, can, can we just stop? It's it's not necessary anymore. Just, and it's not even a particularly like time-honored tradition. We really didn't start doing televised presidential debates in earnest till 1976. 
So, I mean, there's, there's, just stop, just stop. I'm done with them. <laughs> if I never have to watch another presidential debate, I will be fine. Primary debates, yes, definitely keep those because you do need those to distinguish differences between candidates. But as far as the general is concerned, I mean, it's just, by the time you make it to the general election, especially now with how we cover politics, you've already seen so much of a candidate that it's like, what more do you need to see? Like, I I don't, it's just, to me, they just seem to be a vehicle for candidates to act out and act a fool on stage. And they accomplish nothing. So get rid of them. Moving on to Trump. And this has just been the week of Trump and people trying to figure out what the hell is going on with Trump. And (laughs) we still kind of really don't know. Um... He tweeted out a doctor's note, an unsigned doctor's note, that is very carefully worded. Um, the, the best part about the doctor's note to me is that it proves that Donald Trump has been lying this whole week about his health. Um, the note that was issued on Friday said that as of that point, it had been the first time that Trump had been gone like 24 hours without a fever which means this whole damn week the man's been running a fever while he's been doing things like going on Hannity's show and giving very weird rambly and also notably very hoarse voiced and coffee sort of explanations on stuff like it's it's wild even Hannity didn't know what the hell to do with this man he's just like I um Okay, Mr. President, that's that's great. Do you want to talk about you want to talk about votes? And then, and then all of a sudden, we're talking about like the water that California releases out to the Pacific, and that they do too much of it. But then there's like these tiny fish, and they need the water, and it's like, what the fuck? And everyone's like, oh, he's on drugs, and now it's like, oh wait, no, he was just running a fever. <laughs> but more substantially, things that Trump did while he was in a fever state is that on Tuesday he tweeted out that the stimulus negotiations were off that he was instructing Mitch McConnell to no longer participate in any kind of discussions and so after that the stock market went boop, and yeah The next day, he pretty much had to backtrack off that and be like, no, no, we need to do a big stimulus plan, like a huge stimulus plan. We need to do one that is somehow, and this is how convoluted this whole conversation has gotten. He he wants it under $2 billion, but then the one that he's proposing is over $2 trillion. Excuse me, $2 trillion. Did I say billion? (laughs) Oh, that was optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, trillion. Um, yeah, we're going to spend a couple trillion more dollars on this. So maybe eventually if we ever get around to doing another stimulus bill, which at this point seems nobody quite knows. Um, the Somebody put up one. No, the Republicans put out one and the Democrats declined it. Um, Trump wants more spending in certain areas. And it's, I, oh my God, what a fucking mess. What a goddamn mess. And again, this all makes a lot more sense when you realize that the man's been running a fever all damn week. 
Like, oh, okay, that's why you're acting fucking more crazy pants than usual. You're feverish. That's what happens. So what we're doing with stimulus is I am still staying with we're not doing anything before the election. I mean, I just don't see how logistically any deal is going to be worked out in the next, what, three weeks? Yeah, I just don't see it. And then, of course, like I've been saying, what happens with that stimulus deal is entirely dependent on what happens on Election Day. But yeah, just complete and utter shenanigans from the president this week, which is, you know, it was almost hard to tell from like normal Trump to possibly like roided up feverish Trump. Like the difference, it was there, but it was kind of hard to tell sometimes. Although there's been rumors for ages that dude is a total Adderall freak and I'm an Adderall truther. So maybe there really isn't a difference and he's just been on drugs this whole time. Which would be funny because he's been accusing Biden of being on drugs. So maybe everybody's on drugs. Maybe nobody's on drugs. I'm pretty sure Trump's on drugs. At least he should still be on drugs. I mean, he's still, I mean, by rights, he should have stayed his ass at Walter Reed and finished his treatments. Uh, I I guess we're not going to talk about that. The fact that he did end up essentially checking himself out of Walter Reed on Monday, which if you'll remember, he didn't go in until Friday. And so Friday to Monday, if we want to be generous, we'll say 72 hours, which is not long enough to have to have gone through like a full Redemsevere or Regeneron treatment. So we left without finishing treatment. I, I don't understand that. Like there's people that would gladly kill to have access to that treatment. And this idiot can't even stay put long enough to actually get a full treatment, which for Redemsevere, it's for somebody with his condition, the recommended treatment time is five days. Just stay at Walter Reed for five fucking days. How hard is this, dude? Like I I am... Why Why do I expect anything different from this man? Anyway, um, the New York Times has continued their drops on the t- Trump tax returns, and we got two of them this week, both of which interesting, one of which possibly illegal. Actually, probably not possibly. Actually illegal. Um, the first report, and I'm going to simplify this down a bit because there is a lot in this particular section. But the overall point of this particular, I think this was either part two or part three. Um, This centers around whether or not Donald Trump received an illegal campaign contribution slash possibly engaged in money laundering in October of 2016. And again, I'm, I'm going to simplify this because it's slightly complicated. So Donald Trump and Paul Ruffin, have been business associates for a long time. They were in business together on the Trump Vegas property, which never, I mean, it got built, it exists, but it's never really turned a profit. And so, yeah, I I think it was initially meant to be condos and then they converted it to hotel because they couldn't sell the condos. And this was also, all of this was kind of going on during the time when The real estate market really like collapsed in Vegas. So just monumentally bad timing all the way around. But 
here's what ends up happening. In October of 2016, and again, I'm going to try to explain this as, as simply as possible because it's kind of convoluted, but it's supposed to be kind of convoluted because money laundering has to be kind of convoluted. So Phil Ruffin and Donald Trump take out a $30 million loan and what ends up happening is Ruffin like endorses the loan. He backs the loan. He's the one that, that basically decides, okay, if, if anyone defaults, I'm going to be responsible for it. But Trump is the one who actually signed the paperwork on it. So, okay, we got $30 million here. And nobody, I guess at no point did anybody have to specify what they were going to be doing with this money. So 20 million of it ends up in this, what was it, Trump Vegas sales sort of third party that they had established in order to handle sales and marketing for Trump Tower Vegas. Now, this entity did not have any employees, had not really received any money to speak of. Um, All of the sales and marketing that did happen for Trump Tower Vegas were handled through entities not this one, but all of a sudden they get a $20 million payment and that payment ends up being forwarded on to Donald Trump as some sort of fees owed to him for something that nobody has quite established yet. So the $20 million goes to Donald Trump and then Donald Trump makes a $10 million contribution to his presidential campaign, which initially he was contributing a lot of money to his own presidential campaign. He was very famously going around saying that he was self-funded. Not entirely true, but anyway. So he had dumped a lot of money into the campaign and it was made kind of obvious in the first New York Times drop that around the time he was running for president, he was selling off a lot of assets, not only to try to shore up his own own kind of business interests, because at that point, nobody was willing to lend to him. Like even Deutsche Bank was like, we're not lending to you anymore. So very cash strapped, having to sell a lot of assets, having to sell those assets also to funnel money into his own campaign. So by the time October 2016 rolled around, he was only contributing between one to $1.5 million a month. And then all of a sudden, $10 million. And so it's like, all right, well, where did this $10 million come from? So the New York Times basically went back and traced it through Trump's tax records, public filings, um, Rufin's tax filings, and kind of track this, this, where this loan started to where Donald Trump magically ended up with $10 million. And yeah, I think I just described about five federal crimes to you. Um, clearly that would be an illegal campaign finance, uh, an illegal contribution. If it was something directly like Obviously, Phil Rufin could not donate that kind of money to him directly because he had already maxed out on him as far as personal donations are concerned. Um, like I said, there's some, there's some money laundering aspects going on there. Um, they claimed that loan 
as a business write-off, which that might be a little bit of tax fraud right there. Because obviously, if the if the money was not spent on business expenses, then you can't really write it off as a business expense, you know. And and it's just like, um, yeah, we got some questions here. And and the the second part of that drop is kind of a deeper dive into what was going on in Vegas, especially near the end of the Trump campaign, and how a lot of Vegas casino owners, property owners kind of came around to supporting Trump and donating money to Trump on the idea that Trump would approve the high-speed rail project between Southern California and Las Vegas, which they had been trying to be pushed through for forever. Um, Obama decided to not pursue it, and Donald Trump did give the green light for it. So it looks a little bit like he was bought a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's nothing new in politics. But if your whole thing is that you're self-funded and you're not going to be beholden to anybody and nobody can get to me, like, um, my dude, that's a lot of money from people who are not you. So if anything is going to come of that, who the hell knows? Like I said, it's about three weeks before the general election. I mean, if anything's going to happen, it'd probably be sometime after inauguration next year. But the the other drop that happened from the New York Times is discussing how essentially the Trump family, Trump organization, has been selling access to Trump via Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster and Doral and the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., about how people have been buying memberships at these places and spending time at Trump Hotel DC with the specific idea that they would get to meet President Trump and pitch their what the hell ever. And that obviously they were directly profiting off of that. And it is true that membership fees to, I think, pretty much every one of Trump's membership-based real estate things has gone up during the Trump administration. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, for all of the talk of Donald Trump divesting himself from Trump organization and not having anything to do with it, um, clearly that's not entirely true. Um, what he did do financially is he didn't divest himself. He created a trust and named himself the beneficiary. And then he put Don Jr. and Eric in charge of Trump organization, which first off, You all know, if this man was actually divesting himself from Trump organization and putting one of his kids in charge, it would have been Ivanka. Like, that should have been your first clue, is that Don Jr. and Eric were being put in charge, that, yeah, Trump is still running this, and he is still involved in the day-to-day functions of Trump organization. He still is very much aware of what's going on, so he didn't really pull out of Trump organization. He's still basically running it. Well, being president of the United States, <sighs> he didn't drain the swamp. He just moved it a little bit. But yeah, the whole idea of Trump organization basically selling access to the president. Ew, I mean, that's I don't know if that's illegal. Probably not. But it's sketchy as fuck. <laughs> oh, my God. This has just been God. What a mess of a presidency. What a mess. 
And I, I don't think the New York Times is done yet. Say they had originally said that this was going to be a multi-part series. So whether they have more things coming out in the next couple of weeks, I don't know. Whether any of this makes a difference to anybody, I don't know. But it is worth knowing and having it be on the public record that, yeah, things are not exactly how they've been portrayed. And there might have been some rather serious federal criminal activity taking place here that maybe somebody should be looking into. But anyway, moving on to what the events of next week will be. The Supreme Court nomination or confirmation process is still slated to take place next week. I believe it's Monday through Wednesday at this point that it is scheduled for. Um, Next week's going to suck. Like the, like the Lord granted me a reprieve from a debate, but he's also going to make me sit through a confirmation process again, which I sat through the Kavanaugh confirmation. And if you are at all curious and you want to go into the backlog of this particular podcast, there's about three episodes back to back from that time, giving my thoughts and opinions on everything around the Kavanaugh confirmation. And I'm still a little scarred by it. And I'm really not looking forward to this one, but of course I will watch as much as I can because this is what I do and I do this for you guys so that you don't have to. And also because, I mean, this is part of what covering politics is and it's kind of, I mean, it is in a way watching and recording history, not to like put my own head up my own ass and say that what I'm doing here is like something like amazing and wonderful and should be like in the Library of Congress or something. But I mean, recording this stuff for posterity it's interesting, especially when you've been doing it for a couple of years and you can kind of go back to things and be like, oh, wow, yeah, that happened. And it's like, there's been so much stuff that's happened that it's almost hard to keep track of it all if you don't record it in some fashion. So anyway, yep, that will be next week. And I mean, much like the Kavanaugh confirmation, we already know how this is going to end. So we're just going to deal with a bunch of bullshit in the middle and then she's going to be confirmed and then we're going to have an election. And maybe we'll have another debate before the election. I'm I'm not entirely sure of that. Wouldn't bother me if we didn't. But yeah, we're just going to lurch our way towards a general election between two guys who don't need to be president because they're old and senile and uh, I don't. I still don't have faith that either one of them is going to make it to the next four years. So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, on my Patreon page. And don't forget to subscribe to my Substack. Take care and until next time.